think we're recording. Yeah, I think right. we're recording. 318 with Dale, motherfucking Comstock. <laughs> the American Badass Chronicles, Volume 3. Going through his book, American Badass, which will be stickied in the top comment and link in the description. And, dude, I was saying this yesterday to my buddy. I was like, man, doing podcasts with you and or Ted I is like fishing with dynamite. <laughs> you guys go out, everyone watches it. The The average view time is up. All the comments are up. The likes are up. The shares are up. And it's just slowly dawning on me. I'm like, why am I even having anyone else on the podcast? This is where all my <laughs> this is where all my goals is. But well, you you got some more good guys coming on board, man. Gary O'Neill, uh, American Warrior, Jim Smokey West. Uh, these are two badasses, man. Yeah. Um, and we talked about that last week, you know, in the last podcast. And these guys were my, you know, I had six mentors, as I mentioned, you know, my father, my uh, grandfather, my uncle. Uh, my military mentor was Gary O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Jim West was my martial arts trainer, instructor, mentor for a long time. Uh, still a good friend of mine. And then uh, lastly, uh, I mentioned David Fabricius. He's the, uh, he's a, also a world-class uh, coach, um, entrepreneur, and things like that. I learned a lot about business from this guy. So, But uh, Gary and Jim Ryder up there, man, they, they really are – they literally are two badasses that uh, – you don't ever want to get in a fight with. Even at their age now, they will freaking hand you your ass, man. Um, pretty amazing guys. Fuck so, <laughs> they got some great stories, dude. Great stories. In fact, it'd be awesome if you can get them on at the same time oh, and uh, awesome. tell some of their tell some of their stories. Oh my God, man! I mean, holy Jesus! Um, not the guys you want to meet in a in a fight for sure. Yeah. Um, I've, anyways, I've wanted to link up. I want. I've wanted to link up other guests whose like paths have crossed, and. It's always difficult, but like one, I want—I don't know if I could get him to do it. But one I've wanted to do was obviously you were in Operation Acid Gambit, right? You're the door breacher mm-hmm. at Modelo Prison to get uh, CIA agent yep. Kurt Muse. But yep. obviously, y'all's y'all's um, y'all's ride is 160th Soar, and I've had on Mike Durant 160th Soar, and he was in Operation yeah. Acid Gambit. Granted, he flew the Blackhawks, and you guys took like the Little Birds, so right. But yeah, I've yeah, we had a but, but we had a couple Blackhawks yeah. uh, in the in the formation uh, yeah. command and control. Yeah, and the C three birds. So yeah. yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I just thought that would be cool. Like thirty years later, you get a couple guys from the same operation. I always thought that would be yeah. I tried to do it with the Apollo Moonwalkers. I was like, oh, I got one. I'm going to get another guy that's walked on the moon. And their agents were just like, no. And I was like, okay. Was like, fuck really? It. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, fuck. I, I mean, dude, these guys, these guys do like $100,000 keynote speaks. And I'm like, really? Yeah. I mean, no, dude, they, walk, they walked on the moon. Yeah. They walked on the moon. <laughs> yeah. So what? I can do the moonwalk. <laughs> <laughs> so what? I can do the moonwalk. Dale Comstock, Sunday, January 17th. 10 You walked on the moon, so what, dude? You know, goddamn it. You know where I've walked? Man, I've walked some crazy places, you know? Dale's so, like, I can clear uh, a room in under a second. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't give, I don't give a fuck about the moon, man. I can take down three I did, I, did, I did the long walk for Delta Selection, man. There ain't too many guys that was able to do that. I can tell you that. Yeah, um, Jesus Christ in heaven. That's a hell of a walk. Um, but yeah, so everybody's listening out there. Um, we're kind of shooting the shit, but... Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to go through who am I, if you don't know, I'll just Google it yeah. or whatever. But uh, um, there's you know, two, there's two previous it, episodes. We did American Badass, yeah. Volume 1, Volume 2. This is Volume 3. So just go back to the last last Sunday there and the Sunday go. before. Sorry, go on. 
Uh, yeah, no. So um, I'm actually calling you from Bali. Um, I'm living in Bali. I, I live in, I have a home in Florida also, but, uh, you know, I maintain that as I mentioned before for my daughter, uh, she's 11 years old. So when I go back, she and I have a home together. Um, but, uh, my home for all intents and purposes is right here in Bali. And I have a business here <clears throat> that's kind of <laughs> in the final throes. Hopefully I can get us, you know, do some CPR and get it or to resuscitate. But as COVID's killing everything, man. But uh, there's other opportunities here, so I'm still uh, still kicking. But so I'm calling it from Bali. What a cool place, right? I live here. Um, it's paradise, literally. And uh, but it's got its issues too with this whole virus bullshit and the social distancing mask. You have to wear a mask in the car. You know, they've really lost their mind here. But uh, you just kind of put up with it. Um, you you know, you just kind of. You just do what you got to do, man. You get caught. You're like, oh, oh, oh you got a mask. Yeah, I forgot yeah. put it on yeah, and yeah, drive yeah. off, take it back off. You know, it's just stupid stuff. Um, you know, or if you're if you're if you're an expat here, you know they, you know, you got money, so they'll, you know, hey, you got to you know pay the fine. And you usually give the guy like seven bucks, you know, and that's a lot of money for them, and yeah. you're good to go. And if you're an Indonesian, you can't pay, you know, they'll make you get off and do push-ups or something on your motorbikes. <laughs> um, really? It's a weird shit. Yeah, it's just weird stuff, man. Uh, weird. I, I can go on about the weirdest, but uh, some of it's just crazy, man, the, the corruption and stuff like that, but not here to really talk about that. Uh, so anyways, calling from Bali, um, other side of the world. It's uh, 11 p.m. Sunday night. And uh, I'm 13 hours ahead of Eastern Standard Time, which is cool. But uh, so what I'm going to do is continue on with American Badass and uh, go into the next chapters. Um, the next one will be an autogenic conditioning, uh, the mind game. Talk a little bit about that. And uh, why did I include that in the book? Well, actually, the reason I included American Badass is because People ask me all the time, man, how, Comstock, how the hell did you do all these things? You know, what is it that got you through this stuff, right? And uh, I can tell you it's not willpower, man. It's it's imagination. Um, yeah, I just said that, imagination. In fact, uh, Emil Koo, he's the founder of Autogenic Conditioner, one of the forefathers, uh, uh, you know, one of the first guys to really um, buy into the autogenic conditioning game. And, uh, you know, he'll say it, you know, and he said it before, you know, it, it's, um, it's not about willpower, you know. Mm -hmm. Success is based on imagination, not willpower. As you know, right, we we had this conversation last week, and, uh, you know, when you first talked to me, you know, a year ago, and you learned about autogenic conditioning and what it meant, and uh, you started applying some of these principles, um, things, it created some realities for you that uh, you didn't think was possible, and all of a sudden, wow, for, it yeah. came about. So for every, it was magical, for everyone, right? Yeah, for everyone listening, sorry to interrupt, Dale, but, you know, I, that is yeah, something yeah. I have to tell is last March, so learning about that, and me, I've been meditating since 2008, but last March, I remember reading Dale's book, and he was talking mm -hmm. about autogen, and I won't spoil it, but went into where in short you don't you don't tell yourself what your goal is you tell you well you choose your goal but then you tell yourself you already have it and again if anyone else tells me this i'd be like that's great like pass me the bong what are you smoking but when there's something like you and i'm like there's clearly you know you're a no bullshit guy you're in delta it's it's the, okay let's put it to work so one thing i started doing is like okay you know a year ago march or january that last year so march last year 2020 29 at the time, still living at home, but I was like living at home, working at a liquor store, and I was like, I want this podcast to work. I was like, what do I want? Like, what would be enough to move out, to pay for my own health insurance, auto insurance, and everything? And I was like, I like, I need, like, I need to make anywhere from like 75 to 100K. And I was like, that seems impossible. 
because I'm making make like 200 bucks a week at a liquor store. But in your book, you go, don't don't look George S. Patton. Don't t- don't tell people how to do a goal. Tell them what goal you want and let them surprise you with their ingenuity. So I let I just every day meditating, I'd get into a deep state. And when I was at the deepest state, I would tell myself, I'm making 75,000 a year. I'm making 75 to 100. Now I'm going to I make 75,000 to 100,000 a year doing this podcast. Here we are a year later, and the number is somewhere in between there. But that's, I'll leave it at that. But that's insane for me. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, and, and so the reason I included in this book is because it really is the reason I was able to succeed at so many things in life and continue to succeed at them because I'm getting even better and better at it. I'm going to get a better understanding of it, um, all the intricacies of it, and uh, it's it's amazing. So when people go, Comstock, how the hell did you do all these things? The, my first time they asked me that question years ago, I thought, did, did what? I thought I was doing what everybody else was doing, right? I thought I was just keeping up with the Jones, <laughs> uh, all the other guys, you know, especially in the unit. And uh, and then I started to look at it a little closer and go, I, maybe maybe I did do a lot, you know? And then, uh, and then I thought, well, as I started to analyze, it's like, well, how was I able to do so much, right? And... Uh, for example, I'll give you one example, man, towards the end of my career, um, about three quarters of the way through, actually, I was in third special forces group and uh, I was a team sergeant on an A team and um, I was married with three kids. I had a part time business. I'm a full time Green Beret. I was a, a professional boxer and a full time college student, literally a full time college student. I, I went to night school, logged in a lot of hours and, uh, you know, and that seems like, so some people are like, man, it's a lot of shit to do, you know, to be a Green Beret and a professional boxer. Um, oh, not just a professional boxer, but studying martial arts three, four nights a week, training two, three hours a night, um, you know, raising a family, taking care of my wife and all the things I had to do. You know, it's, uh, you know, for me, it just seemed like, you know, that's just normal. And um, probably everybody does that. And, and now I look back, it's like, no, nah, it's probably not normal. And not everybody does that. But everybody could do that. And uh, the reason they can't do that is because they have limiting thoughts, right? So um, I was just, a, I'm just a higher achiever. And, I, you know, once I, once I set my mind on something and I want it, I imagine it, I, you know, I was like, man, I can taste it, I can feel it, you know, then there's nothing stopping me. Um, so I'm going to kind of go through this autogenic condition piece of it real quick because it's kind of the, to me, it's in a lot of ways, it's it's what laid the, the basis for my success, right? I can tell you, had I not understood this or realized what was going on, uh, my life would probably be very different. And I will also tell you, most people, 99.99% of people out there have no idea what this is or how it works or that it's a thing. Um, in fact, the roller eyes when you talk about it, like, you know, it's some yeah. psycho babble, hocus yeah. pocus stuff, but... Uh, you know, right? But uh, it's it's real. Yeah. Um, and so um, I want to actually. So you said something a minute ago that I wanted to. It it, it basically spurred a thought, and I just want to throw it out there real quick. So um, I do leadership coaching, not just leadership uh, performance coaching. Right? I call it optimal performance coaching, and uh, and I talk about a lot of things. I talk about autogenic conditioning. It's really central to my my uh, my coaching program. Um, I, I talk about physical fitness, but not just physical fitness, but what actually happens to your body, the, the, the nutritional side of it. You know, I'm a, I'm a naturopathic doctor, so I made it, you know, my, you know, I studied, 
you know, natural health and alternative medicine. So, you know, I, I apply those principles and everything I've learned into my trains because you can't, you can't be an optimal thinker. You can't be successful if your body's, you know, a wreck, right? And so you're not going to get to the objective if you if you got flat tires on the car. Um, so you got to make sure that the vessel is running at 100% plus, right? Because why? There's another element to this that I won't get into it, but it has to do with frequency and energy, right? And your body is like a battery. And if this battery is like, you know, on its last charge, you're not going nowhere. Um, the third element is the ether, right? Which is tied into the autogenic condition. Um, so I, t- I talk about mindset, leadership, and then the ether, which is the autogenic conditioning piece of it. It's also known, well, not known as, but uh, I call it spinal tuning, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's these three phases of this thing. So going back to the mindset, when we talk about, I talk about mindset, I talk about leadership. And so you said something about General Patton, right? He said, don't tell the guys how to do it. Just tell them what to do and let them figure it out. And you know what? My dad, the first leadership lesson I ever got was from my father uh, when I was in the Army and or when he was in the Army. And uh, I was probably, you know, like, I don't know, eight years old. I still remember we were in Germany, stationed in Germany. And my dad was a great soldier, man. And he, and, uh, he would come home from work. It didn't matter what time it was. And the first thing he always did, man, it was spit shine his boots. Not just polish them with a brush, but spit shine them every night. I learned how to spit shine boots for my dad because I, I started doing it for him, right? Um, you know, lighting the, you know, the shoe polish, you know, melting it, you know, and spitting on the rag, you know, and it just, you know. But anyways, every night he did that. And I remember one night he said, uh, he asked me, you know, a question. He goes, son, he goes, um, if you're, you know, in his case, he was a platoon sergeant. He goes, if you're a platoon sergeant and imagine that you had a, a, a fence that was 10 feet high, you know, and, and maybe 20 feet square, had barbed wire on it, um, you know, there's no gates on it, you know, you couldn't climb under it, you know, you couldn't crawl under it, um, and you had a platoon formation and you needed your platoon to form up on in the inside of this fence. He goes, how would you get your platoon in there? Right. And I thought about it like, well, you know, um, no helicopter. No, that won't fit. You know, parachute. No, that won't work. You know, I'm thinking all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. Right. And he goes, simple. He goes, you call your platoon attention. You tell them to fall out and fall in on the other side of that fence. Right. Basically, what he's saying is you could let them figure it out. Yeah. Right. And I thought, wow, that's genius. Right. So that was my first leadership lesson in life. Right. From from a soldier, my father. Um, so I brought that. Up. I want to bring that up because yeah. I think that's kind of I think it's key, man. So yeah. anybody that's in the military out there or in a leadership position, OK, um, whether you're in a civilian corporation, whatever. Right. If you're leading people and there's a difference between leading and managing. OK, mm-hmm. I'm talking about a leader, man. If you're leading, think about that for a minute, man. Um, that's how you grow. That's how you grow people. That's how you grow your team. That's how you grow your company. And, and that's how you achieve success. So with all that said, um, I'm going to roll into the autogenic conditioning piece. All right. So this is actually how this happened. This is how I stumbled upon it. And again, remember, this has this has a, a, a basis to the rest of my life. My has everything. And, and there will be another story when I go through Delta mm-hmm. uh, operator, the operator training course, where this actually saved my ass. Yeah. It kept me from getting canned. Um, and it's really been, it's been the basis for all my success. Okay. I've owned four companies now. Um, I've sold three of them and, uh, you know, I'm just growing, growing, growing. And I'm a lot, I'm able to do all these things, be a professional athlete. Everything I've got in life is because I, I, I learned this secret, if you will, um, 
about mindset and autogenic conditioning. So here, here goes the story. So this is what happened to me. So growing up, um, I lived in Germany quite a, you know, a lot in the American, uh, you know, uh, concerns and, uh, housing areas because my father was in the army. And, uh, the, the, the big pastime there was intramural sports, right? You know, kids, basketball, football, baseball, that was it. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, everybody lived for that. You know, all the parents, you know, that, that was what Saturday and Sunday to go out and watch the game, you know, during the week to watch the kids, you know, practice because there's nothing else to do. And, uh, and so this was a big deal. <clears throat> and, uh, I was a jock. I was, a, you know, as a kid, you know, I, I liked sports. I wasn't very good at it. In fact, I sucked um, for a lot of reasons. I didn't have a lot of confidence. Um, I was small as a run. Um, I was kind of timid. Um, I was shy. You know, I was the run of the litter, right? Even though it's just me and my sister, I guess I was the run yeah. um, of the two, but I was a run, right? And, um, but I really wanted to be like, you know, the rest of the boys, man. I just, you know, I wanted to do all this stuff. I just didn't have the confidence. And um, so anyways, um, I was about 14 years old. And in my particular neighborhood called Pattonville, which was in um, Stuttgart, Germany, we had two baseball teams just in my in my community alone, right? The Pattonville uh, All-Stars and the Pattonville Royals, a.k.a. the Bad News Bears, if you ever watched that movie, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we were the Bad News Bears. And why were we the Bad News Bears? Because... There was one coach who's been there for a while, right? So he knew all the good players were, all the good kids were. So when it came time to picking teams, he got all the good guys. And my coach was the new guy in town, and he didn't know. And he just, you know, he picked the leftovers, which was guys like me, which was, like, really bad. Yeah. And uh, so um, what ended up happening, so the teams were selected, and, you know, I played left field. Um, sometimes I was left out. You know, but uh, I wasn't very good, and that's why I put me in left field because I couldn't do a lot of damage. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't, and I, didn't, I couldn't help the team a lot either. But uh, you know, I was out there and I wore a uniform, and uh, never got any grass stains or anything. You know, yeah. and and I never had to wash it because I just stood around in it yeah. all day. And uh, but I, one thing I had, man, I I, I could ca- I could throw a baseball. I had a pretty good arm. Um, just had a good arm, right? I couldn't catch for shit, but if I got my hands around that ball, I could throw it, right? Yeah. And so, um, what happened was. Um, on one particular day, I think it was Saturday or Friday, um, we had a we had a game against the All Stars, right? The Royals versus All Stars, the, the the best of the best of the best against the Bad News Bears, right? <laughs> um, this was going to be a shutout, and it was. So we had the game, and I remember our catcher got taken out, right? We had one catcher, he's pretty good, but a guy was sliding home base, you know, need him in the groin. And uh, that was it. Mm-hmm. End of season for this guy. He was out, right? So now we're minus the best catcher, the only catcher we really had on the team. Um, so we lost the game. The next day we had practice. And uh, now actually, let me back up just a little bit more. Um, I was playing uh, always left field. This particular day, my coach said, I need you to play third base. Now, I'd never played the infield, right? And I'm like, oh, shit, you know? And I... I I could never say no, right? I'm the guy that's like, yes, sir, you know, roger that, you know, put me in coach. And I'm thinking, holy shit, you know, and I was, I had no confidence to play third. I never played before. Yeah. Never played the infield. I was a left field guy, right? And, uh, and so I knew I, and we were going to play these guys. And I thought, holy smacks, you know, um, all this stuff started coming to my head. What if, you know, guy hits a line drive, and it comes right at my face and, you know, and I had no confidence in catching the ball. Like, what if I try to catch it and I miss and it hits me in the face, you know, or what if this happens or what if that happens, right? Nothing but negative thoughts. 
that's all I could come up with was negative thoughts, right? So, you know, it's negative energy and I, and I track negative energy. So what happens? All those things happen, right? In fact, this one guy, I remember he was a big dude and he was really good and he was a really cool dude, right? You always have the cool dudes, uh, you know, when you're a teenager and, uh, this guy cracks the ball as a line drive to third base. And I remember all time slowed down, man. And uh, I could see this, this missile coming at me. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember in my mind going, okay, Dale, uh, do you attempt to catch it and miss and get hit in the face because it's really going to hurt? Um, or do you kind of try to like catch it, pretend like you're going to catch it and kind of duck out of the way and let it go over you and pretend like you just missed, you yeah. know? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm processing all this information in like in a split second. Um, time to slow down. Yeah. And I opted for the latter. Like, you know, I kind of half hardly reached up for it and kind of ducked and let it go in my head. And, and, you know, and when I did that, man, I was rebuked by all the parents, man. They were like brutal. I'm 14 years old and they just freaking mauled me from the stand. In fact, they got out of the stands and walked over to the little box next to third base and we're standing like chewing my ass, right? I'm like, you know, come on, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know. And uh, you know, and of course, my confidence was like, now, now it's really gone, right? And so it was, it was one error after another, right? And everybody, like, come on, coach, get him out of here, you know. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, you would think we're playing for the world championship, you know, and that million dollars stake. So I remember when it was all over, man. You know, coach got um, catch got taken out. I went into the dugout and I waited till everybody cleared the baseball field. Everybody was gone before I came out. And I looked out there like, okay, nobody's out there, you know, and I just, I went home with my tail between my legs, you know, and uh, I never gave up. So the next day we had practice and uh, I'll be damned. My coach says, Comstock, I want you to play catcher. <laughs> and I thought, you're fuck with me, right? Because you saw what happened yeah. at third base, right? Nothing. And uh, if I can't play third base, what makes you think I'm going to play catcher, right? And uh, and it wasn't even up, up for debate. He's like, you're playing catcher. And so I thought, okay, you know, this guy wants to just really fuck me up. And he's just, he's having fun embarrassing me. Um, I didn't know what was going on or why it was happening, right? So I quit her. I said, okay. Uh, Roger that. Mm-hmm. Put me in, coach, right? So I had about 30 minutes of practice before it got too dark to, to, to you know, do any more. And, uh, you know, I'm getting all this input. I'm, like, really nervous. Like, you know, good Lord, you know, I'm going to catch her, you know, guys swing at the ball, and shit's going to happen really fast, and all the actions are going to be at home play, you know, and everybody's giving me, you know, instructions and advice. Hey, man, this, you know, do this when this happens. Do that when this happens. And it was sensory overload, right? And, um, uh, and I'm not doing good, right? The balls are coming. I'm kind of like missing, and it's hit me in the chest and the face. I'm like, oh shit, you know. But we're too deep. We're too far into this to make any adjustments. We mm-hmm. got another game tomorrow in the mm-hmm. morning with the All Stars again, <laughs> and so it's too late, man. Yeah. You're you're it, yeah. right? And like, god damn it, man. So um, I remember walking home that night in the dark, and I'm thinking, what did I just sign up for, right? And so I started thinking, well, what if I just don't show up tomorrow? They got to get another, they got to replace me, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'll pretend like I'm sick, right? So I'm thinking all this shit, right? And then I'm thinking, nah, can't do that, man. You know, I'm a team player, counting on me, and I'm not a quitter, right? And I thought about it, and like, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So I go home, and I'm in full, like, panic mode, man. And uh, it was about 7 p.m. in the evening. This was Germany, and uh, it got dark pretty early, springtime. And uh, 
I go to bed and I remember I had, I still remember, I had a little boom box because it was really popular back then. Mine was an Iowa, A-I-W-A, mm-hmm. had the little dual speakers on it, you know, got it for Christmas and uh, had my, my my cassette in there with with my jams and um, my little headphone. And I laid in bed all night long listening to the same song called Daz, Daz, Disco Daz by the Barcades, <laughs> right? And uh, I never forgot that song. I love that song, right? And uh, and so I laid in bed for hours, like hours and hours and hours. And all I did was in my mind visualize playing catcher. I saw myself catching every ball. And if I couldn't catch it, I saw myself stopping it with the chest plate. Um, God damn it, I stopped it with my face. If I, that's what I took, but there's no way it's going to get behind me. Yeah. Um, I saw myself making double plays, triple plays. Uh, I saw myself throwing dudes out. I just saw myself not making any errors. And I, I, in my mind, I visualized every contingency, every possibility, and I saw myself acting on it. To the point where I could feel the ball in my hand. I could feel the thread. I could mm-hmm. feel the impact of my catcher's mm-hmm. mitt. Um, I could feel everything like it's actually happening, right? The sunny day, the mm-hmm. breeze, um, the crowd behind me talking, blah, 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 blah. You know, get that guy out of there. You know, I could hear it all, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so I did this for hours and hours and hours. And at some point, I finally fell asleep. And I woke up. It was about 7 a.m. in the morning. And... Got up, got dressed, got my gear, and I walked to the baseball field. And I never forget the morning, too. It was a, you know, a spring morning, sunny, uh, a lot of dew on the grass, you know, clover, clover leaves and stuff. My, my shoes were getting wet as I'm walking. And I remember just walking, and I had this sense of calm about me. I was very sedate, very at ease, wasn't panicked, wasn't nervous, wasn't scared, wasn't overexcited. I was just like ooh, very yeah. level, right? Yeah. And uh, it was a weird feeling, but I do remember it. And I show up at the baseball field, and I'm still very kind of stoic. And uh, but I'm I'm like I'm mission focused though. I'm like I'm I'm focused. Mm-hmm. But I'm real cool. Mm-hmm. And my coach was like, "Comstock, jack up, get out there, and start practicing with the with the pitcher, right?" And I'm yes, sir. I'm putting it on, you know, and. Uh, all of a sudden, then it happens, right? Here comes the parents. They see me putting the catcher's gear on. And they're like, what the hell, dude? Right? Like a bunch of hyenas, man. They're all over me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, I mean, they're not even, you know, they're not even being discreet about it, man. They're just like, openly calling me a shithead, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I'm like, damn, man. You know, and, and my coach, so my coach taught me a second leadership um, example of my life, right? Um, he stood between me and them. He's like, you know what? Because I'm the I'm the coach. He goes, I decide who plays, when they play, where they play, how long they play. He goes, that's what I do. He goes, if you guys want to coach, be my guest. Otherwise, go back to the bleachers, sit down, and enjoy the game, and leave my players alone. Right? And I'm like, damn. And they're like, <clears throat> they, yeah. they all started off right. And uh, but I remember watching him stand up to these parents. Right? And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Very cool, right? In my, you know, you got my back, and uh, so I'm I'm practicing, and game starts, and then uh, make a really long story short, um, everything I imagined in my that night visualized happened. Mm-hmm. I made double plays and triple plays by myself. I was a one man baseball team. Not one ball got past me ever, never Fuck got yeah. past me. I mean, I 
There were dirt balls. I'd stop on my legs, my balls, if that's what it took, my chest, my face. Um, but they were no, nothing's getting behind me. Um, I was catching pop flies, double playing, hitting dudes out on second base, third base. Um, I was a one man baseball team, zero errors, man, zero errors. And, uh, when the game was over, I was awarded the game ball as the most valuable player of the game. Um, it was amazing, right? It's like I was the MVP. I was a one man. I, was, I didn't need the rest of the team. I got this, man. Yeah. You guys just go sit down. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, had yeah, it, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what it was like, right? And and uh, I played catcher from that point on. They're on, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I just smoked it, right? And so I walked away from that day thinking, wow, how did that happen? I went from zero to hero. I went from a guy with no confidence yesterday, total failure, you know, total dumbass playing. I mean, just just a total fuck up. And to, today, I'm like the freaking most valuable player. And from there on, I was the I'll kick some ass to the catcher. And so, what happened? And I thought about, it and I never, I didn't forget the lesson. The lesson was I focused. Yeah. And that's I didn't just focus, man. I felt it. Being the hero, and now like it's actually happening, man. You know, actually happening. And. Um, so that was a very important, uh, a very important uh, lesson for me in my teenage years. And I didn't know it had a name. I didn't know it was a thing. Nobody ever talked about that. It was like, you know, and if I brought it, someone like they rolled their eyes like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Um, uh, you, know, the, you know, they made all kinds of other, they had all kinds of other reasons for it, you know. Yeah. Um, and it didn't make, none of those reasons made any sense, right? It hadn't, had nothing to do with determination or willpower. Um, it had everything to do with what did I imagine? What yeah. did I believe and dream and feel? Right, like yeah. it's actually happening. I want um, to. I want to inject inject my my own story because clearly I have an ego. Yeah, yeah. I have to make this yes, about sir. me. But you know, it's back before I knew it had a name, but I still meditated every day. Obviously, I've talked about it all the time. I graduated the University of Georgia in 2013. I was pre-med, I was a straight A student, but I studied for the MCAT, the Medical College Admissions Test, for nine months, and like that, you know you want to get into like the 50th or 60th percentile and i had been studying for nine months but i was like this like i want to get and i couldn't do it for nine months i just couldn't get past like 50th or 60th percentile which is enough to maybe get in but i was like i want to blow this away and i remember what i finally started doing in the last week so studying from september 2012 to may 2013 i remember the last week i finally it was kind of like what you did i didn't know there was a name for it but what I did is I just started sitting down. I was like, I know the material. Like, I'm not going to learn it anymore. I know the material. And I would just meditate and I would really just focus on it. I'll be like, I know what it's like. It comes up on the computer. I know there's a timer for each section. You got the writing comprehension. You got biology. You got physical sciences. I know there's maybe there's 52 questions per section. I know I have 52 minutes. And then I cut it out and I had everything. And I was like, you know the material. The only thing that's going to change now is mindset. And I would just go through in my head. I'll be like, you know what it's like to get an A on a test. Like, I know that feeling of getting an A on an organic chemistry test. And I'd be like, take that and just apply it to the MCAT. Stop building it up as this monster. And I was like, what is it going to be? I'm going to get my test scores back. I'm going to look at it on my phone. I'm going to freak out. I'm going to call my mom. You know, my dad's going to be proud. My mom's going to be crying. You know, my other pre-med friends, they're going to be like, fuck yeah, you killed it. I'm going to go get drunk as fuck that night. Like, I'm going to get so drunk, I throw up on myself. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go do it. And I remember the morning of the MCAT, I still remember it, May 30th, or yeah, yeah, sorry, May 30th, 2013. I remember the morning of, waking up and going to take it 
but I still remember that morning, like you're saying, I can't remember another morning in my life or a day in my life. I mean, it, it must be that peace you have when you're going to like death row, because <laughs> I was just, it's what you're talking about. Just peace, not excited, not, I was just like, I got this. I was like, it wasn't a matter yeah. of if, I was like, it's just, it's over. I've got it. Scored in the 95th.6 percentile. Right, yeah. so scored in the top four percentile in the nation, but I didn't know there was a name for it. This was seven years ago. But to what you're saying, is it worked? Is it actually worked? And I, it still sticks out in my mind. And I know it worked because yeah. it wasn't just here's my story. It's like no, there I was interviewing at med schools with a bunch of other people who all went to Yale, Harvard, and I'm just sitting there like, I did something, and I don't know what it was, but it worked. But sorry, back to you. No, you're, and so I'm going to talk about this more later on yeah. where. You know, when I went through Delta Selection, I made it to the unit. I made it to the operator training course. Um, I almost failed out of the course. And I'm going to talk about what happened and how I was able to literally, in the span of three days, go from the worst student in the class to the top student in the class. And so, and again, it had everything to do with I had to go home, go to bed, and focus, right? And so that was the game changer. And so... And I remember what happened is when I played baseball and I, I, was, I was in big trouble and I thought, man, okay, what am I going to do? I know what I can do. I'll do the same thing I did when I played baseball. I'll do the same thing for this. And it worked. And it's been working ever since then. Um, so that will come in the, in the uh, subsequent uh, chapters as we go in uh, the other podcast. Sure. So <clears throat> moving forward, um, so that was, my, that was one of my a very important life lessons now, lesson for me. Now remember, um, you know, my father was in the army for 20 years. Um, he, you know, he grew up poor, um, no white privilege there. I mean, literally grew up really poor, man, um, in the, out in the desert, uh, on the uh, east side of the Sierra Nevada mountains in a place called Bishop, California. Um, you know, he had 11th grade education and joined the army. And so he joined the army, ended up in Germany and then he met my mom. My mom had a ninth grade education. They got married. Um, my mom had me when she was 17. He was 20. And then, uh, and here I am, right? So <clears throat> what happened was, moving forward, um, nobody on either side of my family, right, had a college education because they were all, you know, they were just poor. Yeah. You know, they couldn't afford it, right? Dad loved grade education. My mom, ninth grade education. Yeah. And uh, they did what they had to do. In fact, my mom, her only uh, job skill was she was a seamstress. She learned that in school, how to how to sew, right? That was it. Um, so my father really wanted me to be the first college graduate on both sides of the family, right? Uh, that was really his intent. That's all he thought about. It's like, man, I want my son to be the first. I want to I want to start elevating this, the family, right? Yeah. And uh, so, and I knew that. But the reality is I sucked as a student, man, um, for a lot of reasons. I went to four different high schools in four years, right? In fact, I started one year like three three months late because my dad, you know, we were rotating and ETSing and we'd ETS in the middle of school year from Germany to the United States and I'd go to a new school and I just, I could never catch up. And uh it's not because I'm necessarily stupid. It was just because I could not catch up and assimilate fast enough. So I was just barely hanging on, you know, with, you know, C's, D's, and F's, man. If I got a B, I did really good. Um, but, you know, I was I was averaging D's and C's. I, I was terrible, man. And um, 
I had no, again, no confidence, man, no confidence. And part of it is just the situation created this, uh, you know, this feeling for me because I just, you know, everything was a fail. Every time I started school, I started late, different schools and trying to assimilate, make friends and, you know, and anyway, so what happened was, um, I missed the army, right? The army life, because I'm now living in the civilian world. In fact, we had moved to, uh, my dad retired and we moved to, from Fort Huachuca, Arizona up to uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco, right? <laughs> he got a job up there with a, uh, a company that would radio electronics because he was, you know, his, his background was in communications. <laughs> so now like we're really like fish out of water, right? We're in this, I'm living in this world that I'm living with kids that are not like, you know, the kids I grew up with in the military. Um, not the same type of mindset, you know, um, you know, the, when you grow up in a military culture, you know, your fathers and your mothers are in the military, that mindset is passed on to the kids, right? The yeah. discipline, the respect, all those things, dude. You know, when, when you know, five o'clock Reveille, you know, when that was playing, you know, everybody stood out there with their hands on their heart, you yeah. know, um, along with the soldiers saluting, man. That was, that's the culture, man. That's military culture. Yeah. And, um, you know, and people out there will scoff at that, like, ah, you know, you know. And I said, to hell with you, man. You know what? Um, the hell with them, right? So, um, so I missed that culture, man. I missed that, you know, that world, man, where we, there was that, 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 that culture, that camaraderie, that friendship, that discipline, you know, that honor, all those things that made us proud, man, proud. And so I couldn't wait to get, go to the army, right? And I didn't want to tell my dad. And I just thought about it all the time. Like, man, I want to go back. I want to go back to that life. You know, and then we moved to Sacramento, and uh, one day I'm looking in TV Guide, right? I open it up, and they had this. They have an advertisement in the middle, and it was an airborne ranger coming out of a jungle. I'll never forget. I can. It's like I can see yeah. it today, right? He's wearing a green patrol cap. He was wearing OG 107s. He had a rappel rope around his chest. He had a Car 15. You know, he had camouflage on his face, and he's just coming out. He had this badass look to him coming out of the jungle, right? I thought that is it, man. That's what I want to do, and. Uh, and so then just serendipitously, I get a call from a recruiter, army recruiter, you know? And I'm thinking about it, I was like, yeah, let's, let's go down there, right? And so I went down there and I'll never forget, um, in my book, I call, him, I call him Staff Sergeant Dodson, right? Um, just to save his name. Little redhead Irish dude, Staff Sergeant. Freaking guy could talk, he was funnier than shit, man. Just a wild man. And I show up in his office, sit down at the desk, and he just starts talking about, you know, things like, you know, communications, you know, and, and uh, you know, electronics. We didn't have computers back then, you know, and uh, it sounds like a long time ago, right? <laughs> this was like 1980, right? And yeah. so, um, and he's, you know, talking about, you know, everything I was not interested in. And I'm just kind of like looking at this crap on the table. And I goes, I go, Sergeant Dodson, what about Airborne Rangers? Kind of eyes got big, kind of smiling like shit. He wiped the whole desk clean, pulls out one little thing about the Airborne Rangers. He goes, bam. And I'm like, that's it. That's what I want to do. And he's like, we'll sign right here. We're good, right? So sign me up, right? And he's like, hey, if you can bring two more guys in, um, you know, on this delayed entry program, which was a year out right before we graduated high school, he goes, um, you know, we'll promote you to E2 right away. You can go in an Army already in E2 instead of E1. And you get a $3,000 bonus. 
I holy shit. So I recruited my two best friends, right? <laughs> I, I talked him into it, right? And uh, my two best friends to this day are still my best friends ever, man. They're my brothers. Fuck yeah. um, we went to high school together. One of them's a black guy named Kenny and the other guy's a Mexican, Mexican named Joe. And we were the best. And to this day, we're still the best friends, right? Um, and uh, so the three of us, the three musketeers, we signed up together and we went in the late entry program. Now I had a problem, though. I had to tell my dad what I did, right? And I did. And when I told him, he was not happy. Um, he was actually sad, right? He wasn't mad. He was just, I could tell he was very disappointed. Yeah. And I saw it in his eyes. Like, oh, shit. You know, I really screwed this up. I thought he was going to be proud of me because I wanted to be a soldier too, right? And um, he's like, son, you're not. He used to tell me you wouldn't do good in the Army. You don't like getting up early. You're lazy. Blah, blah, blah. You know, giving all this reason why it sucked to be a soldier. And uh, here I go, right? And so when I saw how bad I disappointed him and the fact that I thought you were going to go to college, you know. I was like, look, Dad, I said, I'm going to get my college degree. I promise I'll get a college degree. Let me join the Army. I want to be like you. I want to go back to that. But I'll get a college degree, you know. I, I'll do it, right? And uh, that was my promise to him. So the year went by, and, you know, I went in. And, uh, you know, and uh, actually all three of us went in. And, and uh, so we were supposed to go to Ranger School. Well, that somehow didn't happen like oh by the way you know no we can't send a ranger school there's been a change you know if we get no slots just go to the 82nd airborne division when you report to your company tell the sergeant major you want to go to ranger school and you decide you know take care of it real quick and you can go to ranger school no problem it's that easy right yeah right bullshit <laughs> so you know like oh okay you know, we off. <laughs> so, yeah that never that never materialized you go hey gotta go to ranger school like fuck you there's like a thousand guys in front of you you know you're not going nowhere <laughs> it's like you know, okay <laughs> i keep digging that box holes deeper yeah. right and like, oh, yes, yes, sir, i used to watch you as a and kid play baseball you suck <laughs> you're like fuck <laughs> So, yeah, so anyways, ended up in 82nd. I was in an infantry company, uh, 2nd Battalion, 325th Airborne Infantry. Um, and then we had a really good company. Actually, we had a great platoon. Our platoon won the uh, uh, what they call the annual RTEP every year, which was there's 15,000 paratroopers. Uh, not all of them are infantry, but most good. You had three brigades of infantry. And uh, they would test us, right, in the field, test our maneuverability, you know, and, you know, all our combat skills, you know, and then uh, – they would designate, you know, the platoon, one platoon as the best platoon in a second. It just happened to be my platoon, right? Which is pretty cool. And uh, so we were the, you know, the best of the best of the freaking dumbest, right? <laughs> I mean, when I say that, I mean, that's all we did is dig foxholes and shoot things, right? And yeah. get shot at. That's That was our job. And, um, and so we got designated as, at the time, General Lindsay, um, he was the airborne commander, said, I want to start, I want to start the alert program again, right? Uh, just like in Vietnam. And so he took my platoon because it was the best of the best of the best. And we became the 82nd Airborne Division Long Range Reconnaissance Platoon. And we were now attached to the 313th Military Intelligence Battalion. And um, so after my first year in the infantry, I spent the next three years in, 82, in, the, in the LERPs. And then uh, it was time to ETS, right? So I'm coming up on the age of 22. I'm married to my, my first wife. Um, and I had many of my, many of those, but it was my first one. And, uh, and we had a, my baby girl, yeah. right. Um, which is crazy because she's 36 years old now. And so, um, so I'm at this crossroad. I'm like, what do I do? Do I stay in or do I get out? Because, you know, 
this digging foxhole stuff's just not that exciting and yeah. you know and and carrying a rucksack around all the time and and i just felt like i wasn't being challenged and i wanted to do more and i just didn't see where that was going to happen and so it actually kind of made me want to get out of the army because uh, it had a negative impact on me so i remember thinking you know maybe i should get out go back to the civilian world you know and do something cool there you know and then uh, <clears throat> now backing up just a little bit probably about a year earlier we went to uh britain to england and we trained my platoon trained with the 22 sas their uh, their little range reconnaissance uh, patrols right out at hereford uh england and uh they showed us the selection their video of their selection process which is where the delta force selection process basically uh derived from and uh and i remember you know they go okay you know we had like you know had like 50 candidates started you know and uh as the course goes along, you know, candidates, you know, they don't make it and they put little red X's on their faces. And then at the end, there was like two of them left, like, damn, you know, um, you know, freaking, you know, <laughs> anyway, so I thought, man, that's pretty awesome, you know, and they showed them, you know, humping through the, uh, what do you call the, the Brecon Beacons, you know, the mountains and yeah. stuff, it's cold weather, you know, and uh, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. But uh, I didn't think that was going to, you know, okay, that's written though. So, uh, but then about a little, a few months later, when we got back now i remember my platoon we were out in the field and on fort bragg out in the middle of nowhere out in the woods just way out in the woods and uh it was the sun was just coming up and we were what's called stand to right so what you do is right before the, at dawn before the sun's up and you know, the first light comes up um you know we call it um uh, before morning nautical light, uh, twilight right and so Anyways, it starts getting light. You have to be up, stand too, right? Because if the enemy's going to attack, that's a good time to attack, right? While well, you're still sleeping and shit, you know, they can kind of see what's going on and they get the jump on it, right? And so this goes way, way back to, you know, the Civil War mm-hmm. and uh, probably beyond that, right? It's just military strategy, you know? And so um, it was doctrine. And so we're laying there that morning, I remember, in a little perimeter. And, you know, you're freezing, you're soaking wet, you know, and, and uh, you know, standing to, you know, for, uh, you know, an imaginary, you know, adversary that's not out there, but, you know, pretend like he is out there. And I'm laying there with a the guy next to me, you know, pointing my gun in the woods, you know, and can't wait to go back to sleep or eat my uh, sea ration. And all of a sudden I see this dude running across the perimeter in civilian clothes, right? He's wearing blue jeans, jungle boots. He had on like a... Uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like a flannel shirt, right? And uh, and he had a rucksack on his back. He had long black hair, big bushy mustache. And uh, we're in the middle of nowhere. We're way out on brag, man. And I see this guy running through the freaking woods, man. And I look at the guy and I said, what the hell, man? Who is that guy? You know, why? What, who is this, man? Right? Yeah. It's like, it was like spotting, a, you know, the uh, like spotting Bigfoot, right? Yeah. And so he goes, you don't know who that is? Well, no, and it was almost like he was like he didn't want to talk too loud yeah. because if he spoke too loud, something bad would happen to him. Right? It's like, you know who that is? But no, he goes, that's one of those Delta Force guys. Like, Delta Force? Who the hell's Delta Force? What are you talking about? Right? And so he proceeded to tell me a little bit about it. Really? I didn't know that that existed. And then I remembered that kind of sounds like the SAS guys, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I became more intrigued by that, much more intrigued. Now I I always told my father that I wanted to go to Special Force Speed Green Beret, right? I said that was really my objective, but it didn't look like I was going to get out of the 82nd. Um, you know, it just it just, just didn't look like it was going to happen. And uh, and then I, right before I ETS, I, I remember I called my mom. I said, "Mom, my time is almost up," you know, and you know. 
I was wondering, you know, you know, I got my wife and my little baby girl thinking, you know, maybe we can come home and live with you for a while until we get on my feet, you know, get a job, you know, and, you know, and move on, right? Um, and I remember my mom, man, her answer was no, not no, but hell no. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. I thought she, oh, come home. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, don't you, don't you dare come back here. Don't you be bringing some woman and a kid too. Yeah. And holy shit, right? So now I realize I ain't got nowhere to go. Um, but stay here. Well, I just happened to get a recruitment letter from Delta Force saying that I was eligible to come out and apply, right? To try out, right? And so everybody thinks because they get the letter, oh, Delta Force wanted me. They sent me a letter, but I, I, I didn't, you know, had better things to do. Right? It's all bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, it's just it, what they did was they screen all the records of the military, right? And they have a, you know, they have a minimal requirement that you have to meet, right? And it's a lot. And uh, it's minimal age, you know, UCMJ, um, you know, actually gets you ever um, certain GT scores. There's all kinds of stuff they look at, right? And if you meet the threshold, they send you a letter, say, hey, you're welcome to come out and put in an application, right? And the application process is basically background checks, actually a shrink, a psych evaluation, physical fitness tests, a bunch of other stuff. So I'm thinking, well, damn, if I got to stay in the Army, man, um, I might as well go for the gusto, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know well, I'm yeah. just going to go to the top, yeah. right? And be the best of the best of the best. <laughs> so, yeah. and, and so I decided, okay, I'm going to re-enlist and I'm going to go to Delta. That's what I'm going to do. Knowing that my chances of making it was like zero, yeah. right? Why? Because I was young. The average age was 33 at the time. I'm 22, just going on 23. 22 was a minimum age, right? I just made the cutoff. I had the minimum rank, minimum cutoff, minimum everything. And uh, the odds of me making it was almost zero, right? Because I didn't have the experience like all the other guys who were going to go there. These other guys were going to be, they've been around for a while. They're Rangers, Green Berets, you know? And uh, so I decided I'm going to do it. Uh, if I'm going to listen, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, so I went to the application process. Went through all that, you know, and then uh, and then lo and behold, wasn't too long after all the background checks were done, they're like, hey, well, you're eligible to come to assessment and selection, right? Like the next step, right? And so, okay, cool. So I, so at that time, right, I trained like a madman too. Trained like a madman. Um, now, what people don't, most people don't know, and I'm gonna, it's, most people don't make selection the first time. I didn't make it the first time, okay? I did not make, I made a right up to the last damn day. Um, and there's a reason I didn't make it. Um, and it had to do a lot with, at the time when I went through, they had the 100 year floods in, in uh, West Virginia. And the, the river, Cheat River went 12 feet over its banks. Everything was underwater, everything was lost. And basically, you know, I was swimming through selection. I wasn't walking through it no more. And uh, the attrition rate was super high. And I made it right up to the last day, and I got pulled, is what they call a time standard. I just couldn't swim fast enough, I guess. Um, and I remember really being disappointed. Like, damn. And what that meant was I'm going to go back to the 82nd to the LERPs, you know, and, and continue to dig foxholes and shit. So I remember when I sat on the board at the, at the uh, um, exit brief with the commander, you know, He's like, boy, you know, you did a good job, you know, blah, 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 you know, and, uh, you know, thanks for coming up, you know. And I was like, you got any questions? I go, yes, sir. Um, you know, can I try it again? I'd like to try it again. 
goes, yeah, you can try it again. He goes, I'm going to recommend you get to try it again because you didn't quit and, you know, you got hard. But he goes, I'm going to recommend that, I'm going to suggest that, you know, you give yourself a few years, go be a Green Beret, be a Ranger, you know, get some time under your belt, you know, get some miles under your boots. And then, uh, you know, write me a letter and, you know, and I'll consider bringing you back to let you try it out again. And I remember sitting there thinking about that and I'm like, what? Fuck that. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing all that just to come back. I'm doing this now, right? And that's what I'm thinking back in my mind. I'm like, yeah, watch me, right? Uh, thanks a lot, sir. Yes, sir. And then I leave. No, that's bullshit. I ain't doing it. So I, I waited, I, I waited till the next selection, right? A year later. Um, and this time I knew what I was up against, right? I said, okay, this time there is no way nothing's going to stop me. No, no floodwaters. Nothing's going to stop me this time. Right. And so I trained like a freaking madman. And, uh, and I did, I trained for about three, three, four months straight. I mean, as hard as I could three times a day. And I got a major, I got a serious training regimen that I actually offer um, as part of my coaching program. For, there's a lot of guys in SF or guys that want to go to SF or try out for Delta. I have a training program for them, the same one I went through that I did. I basically, I outlined it. Um, you know, what did I do? How did I do it? You know, diet, nutrition, and uh, it's a solid, it's a solid program, right? And so now I'm, I'm getting orders again. I try, I put my paperwork in and they approve it, right? I, oh, I'm in. And, uh, and so the same time I got a letter, um, I got orders to uh, PCS, basically a permanent change of station. I was supposed to leave Fort Bragg and go to Fort Polk, Louisiana and be part of the mech unit there, right? Basically the swamps of, uh, of uh, Louisiana. And that was going to happen like two days after I would have come back, completed selection course, right? And I'm like, oh shit. So that meant I had to start clearing Fort Bragg, turn all my gear in. I had a house I bought, I got to rent, and I'm in a little house, but I bought it. Like, damn, what am I gonna do with the house? I gotta sell it, rent it. I had a lot of stuff to do, like in this much time. And uh, and that was gonna really detract from everything. And uh, so I decided, you know what? I am going to make it this time, come hell or high water. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna make it, right? And I am not gonna do one thing to prepare the PCS. <laughs> and basically, I was gonna roll the dice. If I didn't make it, I mean, I would have had to come back and jump through my ass, literally come back and report right to my next assignment without renting my house, selling my house, turning my gear, making any preparations. I would just walk by into my house, kiss my wife goodbye, and just kept on going, right? Isn't that, That's how... Isn't that Alexander dude, is, the yeah. Great? It, Alexander the Great, if you want to take the island, burn your boat? Well, yeah, that's Mars, pretty much what happened, right? Yeah, that's what I did. Island, I, burn your boat. <laughs> yeah. I, I just That's what I did, right? It was a, it was a huge risk. Huge risk. But I was like, you know what? There's there's no way I can fail. I wanted it so bad. I saw myself make it through the course. I yeah. saw myself being an operator. I saw myself living the lifestyle, doing those operator things. You know, I just saw it, man. Yeah. And and uh, I remember one day I was I was humping down the road um, in my neighborhood with a rucksack on, and this guy rolls by me on a bicycle. And he's got a big bushy mustache. You know, the hair dude going on. He's got the the, the signature Pedro on his side. And he kind of rolls, rides back, button hooks back around, comes back to me and goes, hey, man, are you getting ready for something? I go, yep. He goes, all right, man, good luck. He knew what I was doing. I knew who he was, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I could just tell, right? And uh, and he knew it too, right? So, yeah. uh, and I, when I saw him, I go, I want to be like that guy, man. You know, how cool is that shit? Yeah. And so I want, I want the cool mustache too. <laughs> so anyways, um, <laughs> so I went back and, 
and it was a Hail Mary play. And I tell you what, I smoked that course. There was 110 of us that started, six finished, and three of us got selected. I was the youngest guy ever in the year, ever. Yeah, at the time, I was the youngest guy ever at the age of 23 to make it. Um, The other two guys that made it were in their their mid-30s. So they were Rangers, Green Berets, right? So I I made it, man, and I smoked it. You know, I I was always the first one done, the first one at my RV, waiting and waiting and waiting for the next guy to come in. I know I can kind of gauge how well I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Now, did I have an advantage because I went through twice? I would argue no, because... You don't get the same lanes. Um, you don't. You don't. It, everything's different. And the reality is, you still gotta walk those mountains. Just because you've been there before doesn't mean you can fly over them. You still gotta walk them, right? Yeah. And you still gotta do the work. And so, um, and there were some moments out there, dude. I had tears in my eyes, man. I mean, really, it was it was very demoralized. And, and Delta Selection is very different from it's the most unique selection course in the world. Okay, people talk about you know Navy Seal, wah wah wah. You know what I mean? Delta Sports Selection is an individual effort. Every candidate goes through selection, goes through by himself. He either succeeds or fails on his own merit. And actually, all the pressure that he's under, he creates for himself. It's all psychological, right? Whereas when you go through, you know, Buds or, you know, Ranger School or anything else, right, you're going through as a team and groups, you know, and you can kind of draw energy and confidence and, you know, and uh, motivation from the other guys, you know, and uh, you kind of gauge who are you doing with somebody else. When you're in selection, you're all by yourself. You got day, you don't know when it's going to end. You know, you don't know what the standard is. Um, You you have no idea how far have I got to go? When's it going to be over? How many days? Every day you just do the best you can because those are the words that you're left with before you leave. It's like, do the best you can. Yeah. Like, what does that mean? I mean, do the best you can. Yeah. Fuck, you know, the, the best I can is like wide open. Yeah. But how long can I go wide open? Do the best you can. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. and he you good enough or it's not, right? So all the pressure you're under is by, is on you, you create it you're on yourself. And trust me, man, when you're under pressure like that, um, it's a matter of time physically when you break down and there's nothing left in the tank, it affects the psyche. And uh, you, you literally see who you really are. Um, and I, I can remember standing out in the woods by myself, looking at my girl itself, crying, going, you freaking pussy, man. <laughs> you know, is this what, is this what you're all about? Is this what you want to be? Yeah. You know? And, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, and you reach deep, you know, and deep, man, really deep to make it through. Um, and most guys just can't reach deep enough. That's why three of us got selected out of 110. And that happens twice a year, by the way. Um, and they had selection courses where one guy made it. Um, you know, so, um, so anyways, uh, you know, again, this had a lot to do with the mindset piece of it, seeing the, the outcome. But anyways, I made it, right? And I dodged the Fort Polk bullet, and uh, I thought, ooh, that was close. <laughs> Thank God, man, I made it, you know, because that would have been a train wreck right there. And uh, so anyways, you know, I made, I made it through, and, you know, that's how I ended up in, in the organization. And uh, it became a life-changing event for me, you know. And so, you know, I spent uh, I spent almost 10 years over there. While I was there, I had an opportunity to go through the Special Force Qualification course, become a Green Beret. I did my time in the 82nd. So really for 20 years in the Army, um, I was either kicking indoors or humping a rucksack. And uh, with the exception of about a year and a half, where I was the Assistant Opposite CO for 3rd Special Forces Group. Um, so... You know, we're at the time here. We're, we're almost an hour into it, so I'm gonna I say, yeah, we, we <laughs> kind of we can just jump yeah, in Sunday, man. I don't care. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna kind of kind of recap it right here, sure. um, and then um, and when I'm, I'm looking at my notes here, it's actually my book, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a thing towards the end here, right? When I joined the army, at the time the army motto was "Be all that you can be," right? Be all that you can be. That was the army motto, um, and I actually live by that motto to this day. I still say that to myself when. I look at something that I want to do or I be, I'm interested in. I tell myself, be all that you can be, do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that gets me going, man. Be all that you can be. Are you being all that you can be? Right. And, uh, and that's really important. And then later on in the army, you know, later on, you know, they changed it to, uh, the army of one, mm-hmm. right. Which was, you know, the reason they changed it to army of one, because they realized that, you know, the new generation, was actually very self-centered. Um, it's all about what's in it for me. Um, a different psyche, right? With the with the new, you know, the, the new generation. And so they changed it to the army of one because you can go in the army as one, you know, and you get to do all this one-man army shit, you know, and and get all this stuff, you know. And they found out that that was not a good. That didn't work out too good, right? Um, had a, a different a different mindset. So um i'm still i'm still stuck on the be all that you can be you know mantra and i still think about it um you know every day as i'm as where if i want to do something or i'm interested in something it's like be all that you can be do it yeah, man yeah you know you, you only got you only got so much time on the clock man yeah. and uh you know use it up man be all that you can be Fuck yeah um so anyways that was kind of how i ended up in the army uh, i ended up in the 82nd airborne division um, as a LERP, and then you know that made that transition at that four-year mark into uh, into the Delta Force. Um, now going back a little bit on the on the time of the eighty second, you know, I it, it had a it was a it was an important period and for me because being in the infantry, you know, it was, that was hard time. It was hard time. We'd go out of the field for six weeks. Didn't matter what time of year it was, and we went out with minimal shit, man. You didn't bring a field jacket out. You had what? You had a sweater or a field jacket liner. You put on your uniform. That was it, man. Um, you didn't bring a sleeping bag. We slept in. We literally slept in wool blankets, right? You hump a wool blanket to the field and a poncho. Um, and then they came out with poncho liners, right? Which is a nylon liner. Which, you know, I mean, they're actually pretty warm and they're very lightweight, but uh, you know, a lot lighter than a wool blanket. But uh, that was it, man. You know, and and. Uh, you carried, you know, sea rash in your back, cans of food, you know, and, um, you know, steel pots. This was post-Vietnam era, not far behind it, you know. In fact, my platoon sergeant, I remember, was Sergeant Wilson. <clears throat> sergeant Wilson, sergeant Wilson, Wilson was with, uh, I believe, the 1st of the 7th cabin, uh, and, uh, and he looked like Sergeant Barnes from platoon, right? Mm-hmm. Looked just like him, talked like him, everything. Yeah. Um, now that I look back, right? And so he was our platoon sergeant. And uh, he was a Vietnam vet. And this guy was hardcore, man. He'd been there, done that, you know. And I actually learned a lot of things from him. And uh, and uh, there's some things that I actually apply today in my coaching program, some, some of the things that he had taught us that were very unique. And uh, I think it has a serious application into uh, – into success and in, uh, in this other space that I'm, you know, that I'm in when it comes to coaching. Um, I'm going on my notes here. So I'm looking at a couple other things real fast. Yeah. So next week we'll talk about, uh, we're going to talk about operation urgent Fury, which was my first deployment, uh, which oh, yeah. was in Grenada and how that, uh, 
that's that's actually a funny story um and when i tell people stories they're like no way and i'm like yeah way um i literally walked around the island by myself i yeah. got dropped off in the middle of the yeah. night and so um anyway so we'll we'll pick it up from there and then uh we'll uh we'll continue to march and we're going to uh you know start talking a little bit more more about selection going through otc yeah and then uh my my other experience with uh, autogenic conditioning and OTC and how Yosemite Sam my what yeah the lessons I learned from that baseball game yeah carried over you know you know ten twelve years later um, and actually it was that lesson that allowed me to become a Delta Force operator <clears throat> had I not had that experience or that lesson early in life um, I would have never made it through and so um, you know. So there's a lot, a lot more to cover, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll break it off right there, I think, and because uh, it's actually midnight. Yeah, yeah, I'll let, yeah, yeah. I always, <laughs> In I always Bali, forget, Indonesia. Yeah, I always forget <laughs> when I'm talking to you. I'm like, yeah, let's just keep going. I'm like, it's like I'm like my day is getting yeah. started. I'm like, Dale's, it's midnight. <laughs> it's no, actually, you know what? And to be honest with you, man, it's not even. You know, I'm on my own clock, man. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I, I I really don't have anywhere to be in the morning. Um, you know, but I do have things to do and I'll just, you know, organize my day. But uh, I try to kind of keep some kind of a, a work schedule, day schedule. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> but, yeah, you know, sometimes yeah. I have to remind myself, dude, Comstock, you're your own boss, man. And for everybody that's listening out there, you know, um, just paying attention to this podcast. You know, if you're wondering a little bit about, you know, what am I talking about? I, I live in Bali, Indonesia. Um, I've lived in, worked in or, you know, visited over 90 countries in my lifetime. I've, I've lived and worked in Hong Kong, Europe. Um, and so since the time I retired of the military, which was in 2001, um, we're talking 20 years ago. You know, I've always been my own boss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, remember why I said earlier in the story you know, I was as dumb as a rock, man. I barely graduated high school. In fact, I had to take summer school classes just to make sure I had enough credits to graduate high school so I could go in the Army. Yeah. I was that far behind. And uh, I wasn't gifted or anything like that. And so didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have any more money than any other, you know, guy that re- mass started retires in about 20 years, you know. I have a retirement check, which, you know, my ex-wife, is half of that just for child support payments, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Um, and you know, taxes for uncle Sam, you know, all those lazy ass bastards who don't want to work, you know, I got to pay them too. And yeah, so, yeah. um, <laughs> so here we are. Right. But, uh, I've created my own reality and you know, I, I, I live a life where I don't have a boss I haven't had a boss in 20 years. I did a lot of cool stuff. And most of you know, some of you probably know, I spent nine and a half years with OGA, um, doing the same stuff I did in the military. Um, you know, as of the last four or five years, you know, I've been working as a mercenary, a little, a real mercenary, not, you know, Blackwater um, contractor, but, you know, I've worked for foreign governments. It was all above board. Um, so I've still been in the fight, so to speak, fighting against the global war on terrorism. Um, in my 50s, I'm 50, well, I'm 57 now. And, uh, but I live my own life. I get up when I want to get up. I go to bed when I want to go to bed. I answer to nobody. Um, I I hustle for my money. Um, if I don't hustle fast enough, then I got problems. People yeah. aren't going to eat, you know. Yeah. I got a lot of mouths to feed. But you know what? It's nothing. There's nothing like the hustle, and there's nothing like you know being in charge of your own yeah. your own destiny, your own success, and be responsible for your own failures. And uh, and there in that is a lot of um, 
you know, there's a lot of peace in that, you know, yeah. when it's not a lot of stress for me. Um, I never stress out. You know, if I wake up one morning and go, damn, I'm, I'm out of money this month, you know, shit. You know, I don't freak out like, oh, my God, what if I don't find any money? I always make money. I always find a way to make money. I'm always making money. Um, I'm always spending money. I'm always losing money, right? And I'm always making more money. I'm never afraid that I can't succeed. I yeah. know I can. And it has a lot to do with that mindset we talked about earlier. Um, and it's funny how that works. It's funny how that works. Um, as long as I'm not going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I, as long as I don't see myself broken in trouble. Yeah. I'm okay. I have to see my. I have to see the money coming in. I always tell my wife, "Don't worry, money's coming." Yeah. I don't know where it's coming from. It's coming. Yeah. I know it's coming. I hear. I hear the whistle blowing. It's coming. Yeah. Right. And it comes and it shows up. Hey, there it is. Yeah. Just, just like always, right? Yeah. And so, um, I do have to work. I do have to hustle. It doesn't like just fall out of the sky. I wish it did, but it don't. Um, you know, I have to invoke what's called the law of action. Mm-hmm. Okay. One of the universal laws. I got to do something. Yeah. And so I create my reality again, right? I, or I organize it and construct, you know, the life that I live in, you know, the times, the, the time management, the people around me. I organize everything in a way for success, right? And so um, it's a great feeling. Anybody can do it. And if you're listening to me out there, because I have a lot of coaching clients, they come to me and go, dude, I'm in a bad place, you know? Uh, I'm in a job that, that sucks or I just lost my job and, you know, I don't know what to do. And uh, the first thing I always tell them is, you know, change your way of thinking. Yeah. Stop thinking like that, right? Um, think positive, you know, and what does that mean? You know, it, it doesn't mean, well, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna succeed. It's, it's When I say think positive, I'm thinking about that positive imagination that you and I have talked about earlier, right? Yeah. See the future the way you want it see it and feel it like you're living it right now yeah. and it will become so right um but don't just sit around waiting for it to come to the door no invoke the law of action right yeah. so that's part of my coaching program so i guess that's kind of a plug for my po- coaching yeah. i'm actually partners with uh, joe ted i yeah. um we have a company tier called one. tier one performance coaching performance coaching and uh you know joe's a good dude he, we're, you know we're good partners um and you know there's guys out there that'll you know, have thrown him under the bus falsely, wrongly, and I can I can honestly tell you that. Now, and I'm going to take a second here to explain it, explain that because I'm sure there's people out there going out. Uh, Joe Ted, I, um, Joe and uh, Joe and I have been downrange together. All right, slinging lead. So anybody that says he's stolen dollar, it's all bullshit. Okay, we know where that started, where that mm-hmm. stems from. Joe is very very accomplished. Um, all the things he said he's done, he's actually done. I have verified it myself. I've seen all the documentation and because of the organization that he and I both work for, you don't get in until yeah. you're, you pass the polygraph and you don't get in until you go through a very arduous yeah. background investigation. It's probably harder than any, any military background investigation. Some yeah. were like, well, it's the same thing. No, actually it's not. Yeah. Um, and, it, and so, and it's, and anyways, it's a level so, above. It's, yeah. And he and I, he is legit. Um, that's, he that's, is legit. And that's, yeah, that's why we're partners. You know, that's what I tell people um, is whenever anyone's like, you know, Joe, you know, I thought there was stolen valor. I thought there's like drama around that name. I always tell them this: the day after you and I did our first podcast, so March of last year, episode fifty. Remember, you called me the next day, and one of the things you said, you're like, I want to have on my buddy Joe Teddy. I never watched TV, so I had never seen this shit, so I didn't recognize the name. And you were like, you may have heard that name, and I was like, no. You're like, there's like drama around that name, and I was like, okay. And I remember you said. <laughs> He said, Tom, I vouch for him. 
And to me, so whenever anything's ever come up, I always just say, I'm like, you know, Dale Comstock? Oh, yeah, no, I love him. He's my favorite guest. I'm like, Dale vouches for him. So I take that, and I don't need any more. So I just, I respect you through and through. So when you say, Tom, I vouch for this guy, like, I've been downrange with him, that's just my response to people. They're like, what do you think? I'm like, Dale's giving me the green light, and that's all I need. So, you know, yeah. me and all my friends, who the most we've ever done is, like, shooting an airsoft gun. So when you're like, hey, I, I I vouch for this guy. We've been downrange. Like I've trusted him with my life. I'm like, that's all I need. Just game over. Like if my dad tells yeah. me, hey, I trust that guy. I'm like, my old man's not gonna lie to me. The same thing with you. I'm like, Dale trusts him. And I'm like, yeah. it's done. Like, that's it. I don't need any more. So go eat a dick, you dirty communists. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at if you look at Joe's uh, his resume, his bios, um, he's very well accomplished as well. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And together between the two of us, you know, we we feel like. You know, there's a lot we can teach people, man. Yeah. Um, you know, not just about, you know, rah, 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 you can do this, you know, look at me. It's more, yeah. I, I actually get into the science of it, um, deep into the science of it, as you know. We just talked about autogenic conditioning, and that is actually based on science. Yeah. Um, in fact, Albert Einstein said the same thing, you know, success is about frequency, it's mm -hmm. not about philosophy. Yeah. And, um, and I wholeheartedly believe that. So, we have a program that centers on that and we do train a lot of vets. I do it particularly, um, preparing them for special forces training, whatever the hell they want to do. I train a lot of cops. I train businessmen, bankers, other coaches, um, on and on and on. But, uh, at the end of the day, again, the message, I guess I'm trying to put out there to everybody is, um, you know, the, the world is what you make it, man. And you can do whatever you want to do. If you really, if you can see it and feel it, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's yours, man. And uh, what I'm doing right now, no, no, nobody invited me to come here to Bali. Um, actually, I was chasing my wife at the time, who was my girlfriend. I was chasing tail. That's how I ended up here. <laughs> and, then, and after I showed up here, I'm like, hey, man, there might be some business opportunities sure, here. Sure, right? I did my, <laughs> so I did my analysis. I go, yeah, I can do something here, you know. And and, uh, and if you think about it, you know, here I am, American. There's not many of us here, in fact, in Indonesia. And uh, it's a Muslim country. It's about ninety-seven percent Muslim. And I show up here and go, ah, I think I can do something here. I'll figure it out, right? So here I am. I'm in Bali. I got a security company. Got my office. I trained. I deploy canines, right, for hotels and you know, and other venues. Um, you know, and and I do some really cool stuff here. And fuck yeah, you know, if I can do that, anybody can do that. You know, remember, I had a, my dad had eleventh grade education, my mom had a ninth grade education, and I was a C, D, F student. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not gifted, but I worked hard, and and all you know, FYI, in the army, I'd, I, you know, I started out with telling the story about my father wanting me to go to the, uh, college. Well, I got my bachelor's and my master's degree while in the army, while a Green Beret and a Delta Force operator, while an infantryman, kicking indoors, carrying a rucksack. I got my master's degree and my bachelor's degree. I got my doctorate a few years later, working for OGA downrange. I earned my entire doctorate downrange in combat. Okay, if I was not put, putting holes in people or lifting weights or sleeping, I was studying. And uh, and I, I managed to pull off a, a, a doctorate in 17 months, right? So um, it's what you put yeah, into it, man. You know? The American and, badass. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll that, leave it there, yeah. man. Well, but we'll leave it there. But, I mean, I, just real quick, last, like, 30 seconds. 
But that's what I always get back to. So when I talk to people about autogenic conditioning, and I'm like, I've been meditating my whole life. I didn't know there was a name for it. They're like, where are you getting this from? I'm not getting this from some dirty hippie girl who's never shaved her armpits. I'm like, no, this is from this guy. That's the only reason why I give it weight is because it's, you know, if some dude who can't, who, who sucks at everything is telling me how to throw a football, I'm like, fuck off. If Tom Brady is like, I throw a football well because every morning I put tapioca pudding on my balls. I would be like, where do I buy tapioca pudding? Because you have nine Super Bowl appearances and six wins. Where, okay, I'll go buy a gallon of tapioca pudding. Everyone's like, why are you doing that? And I'm like, because he did it. So fuck off. So that's how that's I right. look at it. Not saying that you're saying right. put tapioca pudding on my balls, but, you know, autogenic conditioning. Also, I never in my life once thought that I would be talking to a guy from Delta Force about putting tapioca pudding on my balls. So, you know, like, <laughs> life is full of surprises. Bill, Dale Comstock, hey, same time next week, 10 a.m. Eastern uh, time on uh, on Sunday. I guess that will be the 24th. And, um, yeah, we'll get into the next chapter. All right. All right, brother. Cool, man. Stay safe. See you then. Thank, Thank you. God bless you America. Bye-bye. Stay safe, everybody. Hoorah. Hoorah. <laughs>